Okay, well, please turn to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3, and we'll begin reading in verse 13 this morning. We'll be verses 13 to 15 today. Malachi chapter 3, verse 13, there the word of Christ says this. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge, or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today, Lord, asking for you to teach us. Lord, to teach us in the inner man. Lord, that we might not have such blasphemous thoughts enter into our mind. Lord, that we might not utter with our lips, Lord, those things that your word says are not true of you. Lord, even when we look around in this world, Lord, even when our own experience seems to indicate that there is not a reward for the righteous and that the evil prosper and they get away with their sins. Lord, teach us to judge this world and to judge all things, Lord, not by what our eyes sees, Lord, but by faith, by faith in your word and what you proclaim to be true. And Lord, help us to live according to unseen eternal realities. Lord, to have conviction and assurance of these things because you have declared them to us in your word. So, Lord, give us faith. Lord, this is what we need. How can we please you without faith? So, Father, give us this today, and we pray that you build up our faith. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, we've been in this book of Malachi for the past several months. And the first three chapters of Malachi have listed many indictments of sin against the people of Israel, right? The first three chapters are almost exclusively dealing with their sins, right? The many and various sins that they are committing against God, and the prophet is dealing with these one after another, after another, after another. We've seen them charged with questioning the love of God, for failing to give to God proper fear and honor, They have polluted the worship of God by offering blind, lame, stolen animals in worship to Him. They have complained that it is a weariness to serve God and to worship Him and to live a godly life. Their leaders, their priests, were charged with profaning the covenant of Levi for failing to instruct the people in truth and in righteousness, but instead they turned aside from the way and they caused people to stumble by what they taught them. The people were further charged with profaning the covenant of God by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. They were not faithful to the wife of their youth, but were divorcing their wives and then remarrying godless women. They have also falsely charged God with being unjust and that God is a God who delights in evildoers. And finally, we saw last, the last couple of weeks, they were charged with robbing from God by withholding the tithes and offerings that God required of them. Right, so in all of these things, they have shown that they are in no way prepared to stand before the Lord. That when the Lord comes to his temple, and Christ is going to come, they will not be able to stand, and they will not be able to endure the day of his coming, because they are living in such gross, wanton sins against God. Right, is it any wonder that God is not pleased with this people? That God is not blessing them? That though they are accusing God of failing to love them, how could God love Anyone who is so wicked, how could he love and show his favor and blessing to a people when they are committing such flagrant, gross sins against God? Well, today we come to the final charge, the final charge against the people, which gets to the root of all the problem, right? Why is it that they so quickly turn aside from the way? Why is it that they so quickly speak against the Lord and his worship and his righteous laws? And this is because they don't have faith. We're not dealing with believers here. We're dealing with unbelievers. They do not have faith. They do not believe the word of God, what God says about himself. They have a corrupt view of God, and they are so short-sighted that they cannot see any advantage to worshiping God, serving God, to living a godly life. And this is the way of unbelievers, religious hypocrites. 
Now, after this final charge, the rest of the book will focus on those who fear the Lord and what God is going to do, the promises for them. But today we turn to this final sin of the people. So let's go back to Malachi chapter 3, verse 13. Malachi 3.13 says, Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, How have we spoken against you? Here the Lord tells them, Your words have been hard against me. Right? The people are speaking concerning the Lord, and what they are saying about the Lord is hard against God. Right? It's offensive to God, the things that they are saying. They are impugning the very character and nature of God. They are blaspheming the honorable name of the Lord. They are falsely accusing God of making promises and then failing to keep His promises. And then they're giving their mouth free reign to speak many things against God. But what they're saying about God contradicts what God reveals about Himself in His holy word. Right? This is how bold and brazen they are. This is how proud they are in their assessment of reality. That they will even overthrow the very counsels of God. They will accuse God of being an evil God. Right? This is what they're doing. They're accusing God of being a liar and of God being an evil God who does not love righteousness, but who actually favors those who are godless. These are the things that they are accusing God of. Right? God claims to be righteous. Right? He claims to love the righteous and hate the wicked. He claims that he will bless those who are faithful and curse those who are unfaithful. But they say, this does not correspond with our own experience. This is not our opinion of the matters. This is not our observation. But as a matter of fact, the exact opposite is what we have come to know to be true. That God is not righteous at all. Right, that God does not reward the godly, but on the contrary, He punishes those who are faithful and He rewards those who are wicked. So they're concluding that God is a liar and that they themselves have come to a better, more accurate understanding of the ways of God in this present world. This is what they're doing and what they are saying against God. This is how bold men will be in their sin against God. How arrogant, how proud for them to speak and utter these kinds of blasphemies against God. Is it any wonder then that the Lord says, your words are hard against me? These are highly offensive things to say about the Lord. Yet this is the way people behave. Most men, even most Christians, even many Christian ministers, are more concerned with how their words will be received by their fellow men than how they are with their words and how they will be received by their God. Most people have greater fear of offending men than they have of offending God. Do we consider these things? That when we open our mouths to speak concerning the Lord, we better make sure that what we are saying is accurate, it is true, it is consistent with God's own revelation of Himself. How dare we, or how dare any other man, speak of God in ways that are not true and right? And if we're going to offend someone, shouldn't we chiefly be concerned about offending God? That we're not speaking words that are hard against Him? This is as it says in Isaiah seven thirteen. Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men, that you weary my God also? You weary men, but the greater problem is that you weary God. You weary God by your unbelief. You weary God by the things that you say against Him. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1. It warns us of these things. To be silent before the Lord and not speak rash words before God. Ecclesiastes 5 verse 1 says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before the Lord. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness, 
and a fool's voice with many words. With many false words. So there, you need to guard yourself when you go to the house of God. Now here he's speaking also of taking vows and not fulfilling those vows. But when we take vows, we are to do so in the name of the true Lord. The Lord that is revealed in the Bible and not some false God of our own making. Right, A God who loves wickedness. God doesn't love those things, and yet these are the things that they are saying against God. Also, Deuteronomy chapter 1. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 26. Here we have an example of such wanton, brazen speaking against God. Deuteronomy 1, 26. This is Moses recounting the rebellion of the children of Israel. It says, Yet you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you murmured in your tents and said, Because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt. The people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to the heaven. And besides, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. Then I said to you, Do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you, as a man carries his son, all the way that you went up until the time that you came to this place. Yet in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God, who went before you in the way to seek you out a place to pitch your tents in fire by night and cloud by day to show you what way you should go. Here, God had visited them with many manifestations of his love and of his kindness and of his intention to do good to them. And yet, what do they accuse God of? They interpret these things that God brought us out of Egypt, right? not because he loved us, not because he promised to give this land to our forefathers. He brought us out so that he could kill us in the wilderness. So instead of God delivering us for our good, he actually delivered us for our evil, to torture us unjustly, right? That's what they think, unjustly, right? To unjustly do these things to us. So this is what people do. They will slander God, right? Even the righteous must be on guard against this. Whenever we come under the hand of discipline, Whenever we come under the chastisement of the Lord, whenever God gives to us, according to His will, our share of sufferings, we must make sure that we do not blaspheme God with our thoughts and with our words. Even righteous Job, a righteous man, a godly man, yet even he went too far in the things that he was saying against God. And God corrected him. God rebuked him in Job chapter 40 verse 8 when he says to him, Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you might be in the right? We cannot do these things. So we shouldn't do it. And if we see other people doing it, speaking ill of the Lord, then shouldn't we defend the honorable name of God? Right? If someone was slandering your wife, if someone was slandering your father, your children, speaking lies and misrepresenting them, Right, impugning their character throughout the town, throughout their friends, right, in these types of ways? Would we tolerate that? Would that not upset us? Wouldn't we want to say something and speak up to defend their honor? Right, doesn't even a dumb dog know that if someone attacks his master, what will the dog do? Won't he come and defend his master against those who attack him? Well, then shouldn't we do this for our God? If men are misrepresenting God, when they're spewing out false doctrines concerning the character of God, the nature of God, God's ways in the world, speaking evil of the Lord or of His holy doctrines, then shouldn't we speak up and defend the honorable name of the Lord? Right? Defend the reputation of God against the evil of men and the lies of men. As it is in Numbers 25. Numbers chapter 25 there was one such man who did defend the honor of the Lord, and we see how God blessed him. And we want God to bless us, don't we? So then let's be like him. 
Numbers 25, verse 1. It says, when Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal at Peor. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel, while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand, and he went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. And the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. There, Phinehas, when he saw the name of God being dishonored in this way, by this brazen sin against God, he did something about it. He put a stop to it, and God commends him for being jealous for the name of God as God himself is jealous for his own name, for his own reputation. Also, this was the case in 1 Samuel chapter 17. When David heard Goliath, the Philistine, blaspheming God, the reason he wanted to put a stop to it, the reason he was so zealous to put this man to death was because this uncircumcised Philistine was defying the God of Israel. He was speaking blasphemies against God. And so he put a stop to it. So we also should be like these righteous men. Only speak what is true concerning the Lord. Defend the honorable name of God. So here, in Malachi chapter 3, their words, he says, have been hard against me. They're hard against the Lord. Now, in verse 13, as typical, what do the people do? They always play dumb. They play dumb, they act like they don't have any idea what God is talking about. God accuses them of speaking against him, and they say, how have we spoken against you? What is the evidence, right, of such a charge? Well, God brings forth the evidence. Verse 14, you have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? Here is the charge of God against the people. These are the hard words that they are speaking against God. Namely, they are saying it is vain to serve God. It is pointless to serve the Lord. God is a miserable master because he is a liar. He promised to bless us, right? He promises to bless his servants. He promises to reward those who are faithful to him. And we have been very faithful to God, yet God has not rewarded us according to what he has promised. So what is the profit of keeping his charge? What of all this serving of the Lord if we don't get anything out of it? Right? We don't see any benefit in walking according to the commands of God. We have gained absolutely nothing by obeying God. Or, they say, of walking in mourning before the Lord. Right? Isn't this what we're supposed to do? We read about this on Wednesday night from Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Well, we've been mourning before the Lord, but God hasn't comforted us. He's neglected us. He has forsaken us and has abandoned us. So they're claiming that they have kept up their end of the bargain. We've been faithful to God, but God has not reciprocated. God has not kept up his end. 
Therefore, it is pointless, it is vain to serve the Lord. Now, we've studied Malachi up to this point, and we know that this is a gross misrepresentation of reality and of the facts. These people are not living in the real world. They're living in a bizarro world of their own making. But this is the way wicked people do. Because again, we're not dealing with true believers here. We're not dealing with true servants of God. These are religious hypocrites. They are liars, just like their father, the devil. So we're not dealing with righteous, honest, upright men. We're dealing with those who are hypocrites before God. Fake Christians, right, who pretend to be righteous. They have an appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. They don't have the true inward reality. They have some outward show of religion, but the true reality is lacking. And this is why they are so quick to impugn the character of God and to charge God with such blasphemies. 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Here we see that these kinds of people existed not only in Malachi's day, also these are the people that existed in Moses' day that we just read about from Deuteronomy chapter 1. And these are the people that existed in the days of the Apostle Paul and that he warns his son in the faith, Timothy, that he's going to have to deal with these kinds of people as well. So what will be true in our own day too? Same thing. These, we will find these kinds of people today. Fake Christians, right, who pretend to be religious, who pretend to have an outward form of godliness, but they don't have the true inward reality. And then they are the ones who make these kinds of charges against God. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 says, But understand this, that in the last days there will be times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now, if we stop there and we read that list of sins, would we conclude that these are righteous people or wicked people? Believers or unbelievers, right? It's obvious, right? There's, these are gross sins that are being described here. But then notice verse 5. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people. Right? He's not talking about profane atheists, though these things are true of them as well. He's talking about people who have an outward appearance of godliness, but they don't have the inward reality. An example would be the Pharisees, the scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' day. Those were very religious people. They were meticulous in their outward forms of religion, but they did not have the inward reality. And that's the same in Malachi's day. We're not talking about people who don't go to the temple. They're going to the temple. They're offering their sacrifices. They're worshiping God in these outward forms. They're saying the right things with their lips, but their heart is far from God. And so they are the ones who are doing this to God. Right? And what is all this service right, that they claim to have before God? Well, what is the service that has been described in Malachi? How about offering polluted food on the altar of God? Bringing to God blind, lame, diseased, stolen animals. This is the service that they're doing to God. And then complaining about how much of a weariness it is to have to actually go and serve the Lord. And they say that they've kept the charge of God. Well, is divorcing the wife of your youth in keeping with the charge of God? Is marrying the daughter of a foreign god in keeping with the charge of God? Is robbing God of your tithes and contributions, is this in keeping with the charge of God? So they're saying they're keeping the charge of God, but they're not. They're saying that they're serving God, but they're not really serving Him. And what about their mourning? They say, we mourn before God. That's also a show as well, right? Because even godless people will pout. They'll boo-hoo. They'll whine before God. They'll shed their crocodile tears because the curse of God is coming upon them. Just like Ahab, he did those types of things because they don't like the consequences of their sin. 
but they have no intention of repenting of the actual sin. They love their sin. They just hate what their sin produces in terms of the outward consequences. So this is not true mourning before God. This is not godly grief that leads to repentance. This is worldly grief that leads to regret. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Right, We have to be able to see through this stuff and judge with righteous judgment. Judge with righteous judgment. Second Corinthians chapter 7, we'll start reading in verse 9. It says, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourself, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God, therefore we are comforted. There he says, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Right? And they had godly grief. And what is the evidence of their godly grief? It's their repentance. They actually did what they were supposed to do. It produced in them right, an eagerness to clear themselves, an indignation against sin, fear of God, right, longing, zeal, punishment of sin. And in every matter, they proved themselves innocent because they obeyed his letter. It led to grief, and it brought about repentance that was without regret. But there's also worldly grief. There are sinners who will mourn over the consequences of their sins, such as Esau, who wept, such as Cain, who was downtrodden whenever God pronounced the curse upon him, such as Ahab that we mentioned earlier, who also had these kinds of crocodile tears. That is a worldly sorrow, but it does not produce true repentance, so it ultimately it leads to death. This is the kind of mourning that these people have. Their mourning because God has sent the devourer to consume their produce, but they're not mourning as the righteous do. Right? The righteous mourn over their sin. They mourn because their sin grieves God, and they hate and detest their sin, but that's not what these people have. So everything about them is false. Their view of God is false. Their view of themselves is also false. They make God out to be a monster while they are representing themselves as perfect, innocent little angels. But we know the exact opposite is true. God is not a monster. God is the one who is innocent in this matter. They are the ones who are the monsters because they are the ones who are sinning against God. But again, this is the way of the wicked. They turn everything upside down. Everything is backwards. Everything is upside down. Isaiah chapter 29 Right? This is the way many people are. Whatever they say, you just have to know the exact opposite is true. Isaiah 29, verse 13. Isaiah 29, verse 13. It says, And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder. And the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, Who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay, that the thing made should say to its maker, He did not make me, or the thing formed say to him who formed it, 
He has no understanding. Isn't that what's happening here? Everything's being turned upside down. Shouldn't the potter be the one declaring to the clay who he is, what he is, revealing himself to them? But they say, no, this isn't true. The clay speaking back against the potter, right? Everything is backwards. Everything is upside down. God reveals himself to us. We don't reveal who God is to himself in our own opinion. And yet this is what they are doing and what many peoples do, right? Those who espouse false doctrines. Isaiah chapter 5. This is why false doctrine is such an offensive thing to God. Though many people think it's a light thing, they think it doesn't matter. Just believe whatever you want to believe because God just wants all of us to make it to heaven one day. But we have to worship God according to the word of God and we have to believe what the Bible says about God. And if we don't, then we're breaking the first four commandments. The greatest commandment, which is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, might, and strength. Isaiah 5, verse 18. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, let him be quick. Let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men and mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. They call evil good, good evil. What is dark, they say, is light. What is light, they say, is dark. If something is bitter, they say it's sweet. If it's sweet, they say it is bitter. And this is what is happening here in Malachi. Darkness is light to these people, and what is light is darkness to them. They are saying God curses the righteous and God blesses the wicked. Therefore, it is vain to serve God. There's no profit in keeping his charge. There's no benefit in mourning over sin before the Lord because God is not faithful to his promises. These are their words that they speak against the Lord. And then this is not the end of their blasphemies. Look at what says next, verse 15. Verse 15. And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Right? We used to call the arrogant cursed. But now, because God is rewarding the wicked and cursing the righteous, we must conclude that the arrogant are actually blessed by God. Even though the Bible tells us that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble, we have come to learn and see that this is not true at all, that God actually, he blesses those who are arrogant and evildoers. Not only do they prosper, they put God to the test and they escape. The Lord says he loves the righteous and his soul hates the wicked. But we have seen many wicked men committing sins against God, great sins against God, defying the very God of heaven, Right, provoking the Lord with their sins, taunting God to do something about it, and then what is it? Nothing. Nothing but silence from God. Nothing happens. They put God to the test, and they escape His judgment. There are many people who believe these kinds of lies. Even if they won't say it with their own mouth, they won't say it audibly, in their hearts, they truly believe that the arrogant, that the wicked are blessed by God and it is vain to serve the Lord. All on the basis of material, earthly prosperity. As if the one and only indication of God's favor upon a man is the abundance of his possessions. This is the kind of people they are. They're worldly people. Worldly-minded, they're not thinking about future realities. They're not thinking about the life to come. All they're thinking about is what is in front of them right now and what they see, and this is why they come to these kinds of gross conclusions about God. Psalm 73. And again, we must be on guard. 
Because even a righteous man might have these thoughts creep into his mind. But we have to crucify them. We have to put these kinds of things to death and overcome them by faith in the Word of God. Psalm 73. Psalm 73, verse 1. says, Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease they increase in riches. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. So here, these same thoughts, these same, same sin he's being tempted to commit that the people of Malachi's day are committing. Right here, he's thinking about these things. He's looking at this situation. He's trying to understand what's going on. He says he almost slipped and fell because he saw the prosperity of the wicked. He sees the arrogant being blessed by God, or it appears that way because of their prosperity. It appears when you look at their life that God favors the wicked, but I've kept myself clean. I've lived a pure and godly life, and yet I'm rebuked every day. Every morning, I have my mourning. I have my sorrows. I have my difficulties. And he says, in vain, I have kept my heart clean. And if I had given utterance to these kinds of thoughts, then I would have betrayed the generation of your children because I would have led other believers to commit sin against God because they would have abandoned God just as I abandoned God if I would have uttered such nonsense before God. But he overcomes it when he goes to the temple, when he hears the word of God, when his faith is aroused within him and strengthened, then he understands that it is not God who blesses the wicked. He rewards the righteous and the wicked. They're going to come down, even though they may have temporary prosperity. Ultimately, they're going to be destroyed by God. When we just look at this present world, this is when we get bamboozled, right? One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. This is not the evidence of the blessing of God, right? Just the presence of material possessions without any other consideration, according to Luke chapter 12, verse 15. And yet, there are many so-called Christians who would happily, who would in a heartbeat give up the Christian life they would do it in the snap of a finger to exchange places with a man like Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates or Warren Buffett. There are many Christians to have that kind of wealth, to have access to untold riches, to earthly pleasures and comforts, all the things that this world can afford, they would happily give up their faith in order to have these kinds of riches. And this is the case with the people of Malachi's day. Right? Why do people say it is vain to serve God? Why do they call the arrogant blessed? Why do they say evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape? Right? What is the basis for drawing these kinds of conclusions about God, about his service, about the Christian life? And where do these thoughts come from? In what kind of person do they reside? Are these the thoughts and words of a man of faith? A man who by his faith is looking at future realities like the day of judgment? A man who by his faith is able to comprehend and see a new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells? 
a man who by faith is able to observe and see an eternal crown of glory, heavenly riches? Is this the attitude of a man of faith? Or is this the attitude of a man who is carnal, who is worldly, who is fleshly, who is only concerned and consumed with this present world and the prosperity and riches and the comforts that come with this present life? These are not the thoughts of a man of faith, but these are the thoughts of someone who is so short-sighted that he is blind. He cannot see beyond his own present circumstances because he does not have faith. It is only through faith that we can look beyond this world and that we can see the realities of the life to come. We have to be able to see and look at the bigger picture. And the bigger picture tells us that this present life is very, very short. This present life is only a fleeting moment. Our present life is only a vapor in comparison to the life to come. 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Verse 3. 2 Peter 1 verse 3 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Right? Notice the difference between this list and the list we read earlier from 2 Timothy chapter 3. There's no comparison. This is describing virtues. These are describing the characteristics of a godly and a righteous man. Notice he says in verse 8, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? If you have these kinds of virtues in you, then you're not going to be ineffective and unfruitful. Right? If you have the thoughts of the wicked in Malachi chapter 3, you're going to be very ineffective and very unfruitful because the moment you set about serving God, you're going to give up on it because you're going to say it is vain to serve the Lord, but not if you have these characteristics. Verse 9, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Whoever lacks these qualities is so short-sighted, so nearsighted, he is blind. He is blind because he cannot see the eternal kingdom that awaits the children of God. That is the basis for our serving the Lord. Not for present worldly riches, but for the eternal riches that will be ours in the kingdom of God. Isn't that the problem with Malachi's generation? Isn't this the problem with many in our own day as well? They are short-sighted. They are nearsighted. They are blind. They only think about this present life. If they do not get some immediate instantaneous gratification from God for all of their religious activity, then they will accuse God of being a liar. They'll accuse God of being unfaithful. They'll say, we've been faithful, we've served the Lord, but God has not been faithful to us. And what benefit is it for us to serve the Lord? Why is it that the wicked are prospering, but we are not? Therefore, God is a liar. He loves the wicked. He hates the righteous. This after one whole day of serving the Lord. This is the conclusion that they draw so quickly. But aren't we, according to 2 Corinthians 5, 7, aren't we called to live, to walk by faith and not by sight? We're not supposed to live the Christian life according to what our eyes see. We're supposed to live according to our faith. 
right? We must live the Christian life not by what we see, not by what we experience in this life. We must live by faith in future realities, in unseen realities, things that we have not entered into yet. We live by faith in the promises found in the Word of God. That is the basis of why we live the way that we do. God promises in His Word to bless the righteous, and God promises that He will punish the wicked. Now, that may not happen today. It may not happen immediately. It may not even happen tomorrow. But we can know for certain that in due time, in the end, God will reward the righteous and God will punish the wicked. And so while we wait for that, we are patient. We patiently wait for God to give what he's going to give according to his own will. Doesn't the farmer plant his crop and have to wait until the harvest? He would be a very poor farmer who planted the seed one day and then gave up on farming the next because there was no crop there. He knows that he has to wait. He has to wait. He has to be patient. There may go days or even weeks before there's no visible evidence above the ground that he's even done anything. And then he has to wait even longer before he receives any fruit, any reward for the work that he's done. And yet he knows. He knows that the day of harvest is coming. He knows that his work is not in vain, but in due time, he will receive a reward for what he has done. This is how it is with the man of faith. He knows in due time, God will reward the righteous. He knows it's just a little bit of time and there will be punishment for the wicked. It is coming, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but as surely as the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, these two things will be accomplished. And so... It is no problem for the man of faith to have suffering in this life while the wicked have prosperity because he's patiently waiting for the day that God blesses him and God will punish them. And while he waits, he continues living a godly life, storing up for himself more and more treasures in heaven because that is where his heart is found. James chapter 5. You probably think that these great metaphors just come out of my own mind, but no, they do not. We are plagiarizing from the apostle, the apostle who uses the farmer as an illustration for the Christian life and for how we have to be. James chapter 5, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, Brothers, be patient. Isn't that what we need? Be patient, therefore, brothers. Until when? Until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains? You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who have remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. He's telling them, be patient until the coming of the Lord. Well, the Lord hasn't come yet, has he? So what do we have to do? We have to keep being patient. But he is coming, and it's coming very quickly. He's already standing at the door. It's going to happen so quickly in relationship to eternity. For how long eternity is, right? It seems like it's been a very long time since Christ came, and why are we waiting so many thousands of years for him to come again? But in relation to eternity, it is only a moment. It is a small period of time. He's already standing at the door. He's almost coming. He's almost here. So what should we do while we wait? Be faithful. Be steadfast. Be immovable. Right? Keep doing the work of the Lord. He uses the farmer. The farmer knows he has to wait. Well, if the farmer knows that, and many of us will plant our gardens, and we have the patience to wait, 
to receive the fruit from that, then can't we have the patience to wait a little bit of time, a few short years, till we receive our heavenly eternal reward? If we can wait for food for our body, then can't we wait for heavenly eternal rewards? And what about the prophets? Did they receive prosperity in this life? Was their life a life of ease and luxury? Did everyone love them? No, everyone hated their guts. They hated them, they spoke against them, they persecuted them. Many of them they put to death. But did they give up? Did they grumble and complain against the Lord? No, even though they are more preeminent than us. They have greater faith than we did. They were more godly than we are. Yet they didn't give up. They endured sufferings. And most of us will never experience the types of sufferings that the holy prophets experienced. But they remained steadfast. And then what about righteous Job? Have any of us suffered to the extent that righteous Job did? To have that type of suffering put upon you. But did Job curse God and die like his wife told him to do? No, he did not. He remained steadfast and immovable. Yes, he had some temporary things that needed to be fixed, and God did that. But he did not forsake and abandon God. He did not give up on the Christian life. He continued doing the will of God. This is how we must be in the Christian life. Also, one other example would be Habakkuk. Habakkuk. This is a prophet. This is what James is talking about. The steadfastness of the prophets. The patience of the prophets. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 16. Habakkuk 3, 16 says, I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones, and my legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fell, the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stall. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord." I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer. He makes me tread on high places. He says, I'm going to quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the ungodly. And even though everything around me is destroyed and consumed, I'm still going to rejoice in the Lord. Because I'm not serving the Lord for earthly figs, right? I'm not serving the Lord for earthly fruit of the vine, for olives, for fields, right? For flocks, for herds. That's not why Habakkuk is serving the Lord. He's serving the Lord for eternal heavenly riches. So he will wait quietly. That's the exact opposite of the people in Malachi's day. They're not waiting, nor are they quiet, right? But rather they're spewing up their blasphemies against God because they are not people of faith. They do not have true faith. But the righteous man will quietly wait for the day of the Lord to come so that the wicked are punished and the righteous will be exalted. And he'll wait with humility. He will wait quietly. He will sit under God's providence in his life and submit his life to the Lord's. This is the way that we have to be. We must receive what God gives to us. And if God gives discipline to us, if he gives suffering to us, then we must receive it and quietly wait for God to deliver. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. Hebrews 10, verse 32. says, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourself had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith 
and preserve their souls. Right? This is what we need, endurance. We need endurance. That's what the people in Malachi's day lack because endurance comes from true faith, and this is what they don't have. The Bible clearly teaches us that the humble man, the righteous man, the man of faith, he will receive the blessing of the Lord. He will receive eternal glory from the Lord. While the arrogant man, right, the wicked man, the ungodly and unbelieving man, he will receive curses and eternal shame and contempt from the Lord. This is what the Bible clearly declares to us a thousand times over. Yet many times in this life, what we see with our physical eyes, what we experience in this life, seems to teach and indicate the exact opposite, right? The contrary truth. For in this life, the righteous have their share in sufferings, while in many ways it is the wicked who prosper. Though it should be stated, even in our sufferings in this life, there's still blessing for the righteous. And even in prosperity in this life, there is still misery and curses that come upon the ungodly. Right? Yet in terms of just our outward experiences, our outward condition, in this life, it's like the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man had all the blessings, and Lazarus was a poor, miserable creature. And this is the test of God. The test that comes upon us. Will we live and judge this present world by what our eyes see? Or will we live and judge this present world by what God declares to us from his holy word? We must live by faith. And if we don't have faith, then it is impossible for us to be true servants of God or to please God because without faith, we'll come to the same conclusion that they came to, that it is vain to serve the Lord and it is better to go and practice sin and to be an evildoer in this present life. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1. Hebrews 11 1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Right? Things that are hoped for. Right? Who hopes for what he sees? We don't hope for those things that we see. We hope for those things that we do not see and that we do not possess. Faith is the assurance of those things. It is a conviction of things that we have not seen yet. Who has ever seen God with their own eyes? Who has ever seen Jesus Christ in the flesh? Who has ever seen the day of judgment? Who has ever been to heaven or seen the depths of hell? None of us have seen or experienced these things, but we have to live by them. We have to believe them. We have to order our life concerning these truths. And also Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6. Without faith it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. Right? A part of our faith is that we believe that God rewards those who seek him. Well, then we must ask, rewards in what way? Rewards us when? Right now? Instantaneous? The day that we serve him, he's going to give us a million dollars? Is that the way that God rewards his servants? No. It's in the life to come. So we have to wait for it. But that's not a problem for the man of faith because he's living by faith, not by what he sees. The man of faith knows that there is a reward for the righteous. Even though he may suffer now, even though he will be persecuted now for the sake of righteousness, he has an assurance and a conviction because of his faith in God's word that in due time, God will reward those who seek him. So he seeks after God. He lives a godly life and waits patiently for God to reward him. He knows that there is an eternal crown of glory awaiting him. Though he has not seen it, he's not touched it with his own eyes, he's never waited on a scale, he knows that it is there waiting for him, he believes it because God has promised it to him. God has said, this is what you will have. And the man of faith knows. He knows that there is punishment coming for all of the ungodly. Even though in this life he sees many of them prospering, even though he sees them, many of them living, a life of ease, a life of luxury, a life of pleasure. He knows that in due time, in a very short time, God will punish the wicked with eternal torment 
and miseries. Though he himself has never seen the lake of fire with his own eyes, he knows that it exists. And how does he know it exists? Because God's word tells him. God's word tells him that this is the case. So then what does he do? He keeps his feet from every evil path. He does not join in a crowd in doing evil because he knows the pleasures of sin are fleeting. As it says in Psalm 37, Mark the blameless and behold the upright. For there is a future for the man of peace, but transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. Psalm 37 37 to 38. Mark the blameless, right? Notice the upright man. There's a future for that man. But also notice the wicked man. There is no future for him. He will be cut off. This is the problem with Malachi's generation. This is the problem with so many in our own. No faith. People lack faith. They judge everything by what they see, by what they experience in this life and not by the word of God. If in Christ we have hope only in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 19. If there's no heaven, if there's no life to come, if there's no eternity, if there's no eternal crown of glory, then according to the apostle, then it is vain to serve God. But there is a life to come. There is a new heavens and new earth. There is an eternal crown of glory. There is an eternal life with God for all eternity. And this is where we will receive our reward. And until that day then, what should we do? Serve the Lord. Serve the Lord and know that our labor in the Lord will never be in vain. God will reward His servants. 1 Corinthians Chapter 15, verse 58. It says this, Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Your labor is not in vain. They say it is in vain, but the Holy Apostle says, no, it's not in vain. Who are we going to believe? Are we going to believe the malcontents, the blasphemers of God, such as Malachi's generation? Are we going to believe our flesh? Are we going to believe the lies of the world and the devil? Or will we believe the word of Christ? Will we believe the words of the holy prophets and the holy apostles who tell us that our labor in the Lord is not in vain? Well, let's believe the word of God. And if we believe it, let's prove it by the way that we live, by serving, the God, by serving our God each and every day and knowing that in the end, in due time, God will oppose the proud and God will exalt and lift up the humble. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you, Lord, that your word, Lord, it teaches and instructs us in everything that we need for life and godliness. Lord, we know that without faith, it is impossible for anyone to please you. Lord, it is impossible for us to be reconciled to you, Lord, to be justified of our sins without faith. Lord, we can't even be Christians without having true faith. Lord, we know as well that we cannot live the Christian life without faith. Because, Lord, everything that we're living for is based upon unseen, heavenly, future realities. Lord, things that we have not seen or experienced with our own eyes. And yet, Lord, we believe these things because we have something that is more certain and more sure than our own eyes, than, Lord, what we see and taste and touch in this present life. We have your holy word. Lord, your word, which is, has been tested and proven and tried over and over again. Lord, your word, which always proves to be true. For you cannot lie. You always speak what is truthful and right. And so, Lord, we know that it is not vain to serve you, but there is great reward in serving the Lord. Lord, even in this life, there's great reward in serving you because, Lord, our conscience is clean before you. 
we have peace with you. We have joy that is indescribable. But Lord, we know as well that in the life to come, Lord, there is an eternal crown of glory that is awaiting all of your servants. And so, Father, we pray that we would set our mind on things above. Lord, where our Lord Jesus Christ is seated at your right hand. Lord, that we would live not for the pleasures and the treasures of this present world, but that, Lord, we would live for heavenly eternal rewards and that we would, Lord, look toward that day. And while we wait for the day of the Lord, that we would be patient and that we would be quiet before you. Lord, not grumbling and being malcontent such as the people of Malachi's day, but, Lord, submitting ourselves to your providence to your wisdom, Lord, to whatever it is that you would have for us. And Lord, knowing that if we persevere and if we endure, that Lord, if we are like the prophets and like righteous Job, that Lord, just as you rewarded those servants, so you will also reward us. So Lord, give to us steadfastness. Lord, give to us endurance. Make us immovable. Lord, that we might, Lord, pursue those things that are above And Lord, keep us from being enamored with this present world. Lord, keep us from the sin and the temptations that come when we see the prosperity of the wicked. Lord, may we never envy those who are arrogant. Lord, why would we envy them knowing that they are going to be destroyed? So Lord, help us judge reality. Lord, according to the truth of your word. And Lord, cause us to walk in your ways. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.